You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. If you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to join me in James chapter 3. And uh, the name of the series that we're going after this uh, end of the summer here is Faith in Action. Seven times um, James uses this word wholeness or maturity or to be complete as, um, as the Heavenly Father is complete. And he's echoing Jesus, his half-brother, his favorite preacher of all time, and a little bit of Solomon too in the wisdom. But what he's saying there is that when people are born, they're not, the best way to define a human being when they're born is not bad, it's broken. It's this kind of thing of a really cocktail of good and bad, isn't it? Like when you grew up with your dad and your mom, it's like none of them were perfect, right? But at the same time, um, there was brokenness there. And oftentimes, it's not necessarily that there's like evil, malicious, maleficent intent in the hearts of humans. It's just that we like to cover our weakness with our strengths. And we like to run from God. And we like to um, allow our hearts to be fractured and bless people one minute and curse them the next is what you know, James is going to talk about. And so the, really the goal here, um, I think that James is talking about, is, is, is to come into wholeness. The greatest gift that God ever gave us is Christ-likeness. What do you want for yourself in your life? A boat, a beach, a vacation? It's like we want to think like Christ when it counts. We want to have the heart of Christ for others when it costs us something. We don't just want to say, you know, say things that we want to say like when, the, when it's painless and it's easy and it's popular. We want to say it when we're, when, we're, when we're staring in the face of intimidation. We want the character of Christ. And so um, James is saying that that's exactly what God wants to give us through our sufferings and trials. We just take tr- great joy in these things because we know God is up to something and he is making us whole um, even as we speak. Have you ever been wounded by a word? Have you ever been wounded by a word? Have you ever had somebody say something to you that you just can't shake? And it's been years, and you've heard so many good words, and people have sent so many compliments to you and built you up, but for whatever reason, that word, it's like the negative word sticks longer, unfortunately, than, than the building up word, isn't it? That, that these words can cut us deeply and wound us. I was uh, on a basketball team, JV year, or sophomore year in high school, and the coach had me out at six in the morning, and we would shoot 300 jump shots on this little shooting machine, and... Um, it was all my little buddies, you know, that were shooting guards or whatever. And I remember getting into the game and for whatever reason, you know, mentally wasn't in the right spot and threw up a shot and it just cleared the rim and, you know, shot an air ball. And I remember the coach called the timeout and he said to me, if you're not going to be able to deliver uh, for me in these types of games, I'm not going to be able to pick you up for practice anymore. And, uh, you know, that was kind of the, the end of that little uh, se- season of life that I'll always remember. I remember um, in middle school... Um, you know, they say talking to a girl. I wasn't dating a girl or whatever, but you know how that goes. You're talking to this girl longer than you probably ought to. Uh, and um, we had this little relationship, and it wasn't through her, but through the grapevine, through the friends in the gossip circles, you know, the girl stopped calling me, and I realized that the reason behind the coldness on the call or her not talking to me anymore is her parents found out that my last name was Wong, and they didn't really want her talking or having a romantic relationship with somebody, you know, that, that, uh, that wasn't white like her. I remember one time... <clears throat> um, preaching here at City Lights, and there was a particular person, uh, not here, uh, but uh, didn't appreciate my preaching style, and uh, probably a little bit more, you know, um, uh, a little bit more reverent, I guess, in their style, and maybe a little bit more turn and burn. I remember the quote was, hey, man, listen, I didn't come here to follow Jimmy Fallon. I came here to follow Jesus, uh, and so I apparently thought my uh, preaching style was a little bit too colloquial for them or whatever, uh, so that, that is kind of what, how it goes sometimes, but it turns out that the saying is true that, stick, you know, that sticks and stones do hurt, but you know it hurts even longer <clears throat> and deeper 
and cuts and even has the ability not just to control our past but influence our future is words. That words actually do um, hurt and they do actually sometimes steer and control us in, in the future of our lives. And, um, and that is actually really a divine thing, that, um, that really God has endowed us with, with this really authority to, to speak out uh, what it is that we believe is, is true and right and beautiful, either for better or for worse. And so, for example, I have this crazy uncle, if you have a guy like this, who, who doesn't listen to the sound while he watches baseball games. I mean, what kind of a psycho? I mean, that's one step from being a serial killer, in my opinion. Like, you're watching a sports event, and you turn the sound off. You're not listening to the sound. Have you ever done this before? It's, like, really strange because you realize without the sound how much meaning that the broadcasters give to that, that clip that you're watching by what they're saying. Like, when the meaning, when the sound turns off, it's like, I don't know what the guy's name is or the stats or what college he went to or, you know, the connection piece of this whole thing. It's just a guy swinging a baseball bat until somebody starts talking. Isn't that the power of words, not just to, 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 to speak about things or, or to damage things, but to define the world? Or, for example, branding. You know, like, what's the truth? Like, when you upload your photograph onto Google, it's not going into a cloud. There is no cloud. Can I just spoil that for you? No cloud. There is no cloud. It's on a server in Tennessee that probably somebody is selling your, you know, your data on the open market for money. Okay, so this is the problem. Like, you know, like, the, the, the words have, have power to create worlds around us because they tell us the meaning of things, not only... Um, what the thing is in front of us. They tell us how to use the thing in front of us. Uh, or a pair of Air Jordans. I mean, could you put a name on something and sell them for 20 times more than they're actually worth? It takes two cents to make it in some third world country and you sell them for $300, you know? This is the power of words, the power of branding. Or what about the power of words in culture? That hookup culture genuinely insists, it creates a category for sexuality that you can hook up with somebody, just unhook up with them. The Bible is not saying that when we, when we have physical intimacy with someone, we're hooking up. It says we're mingling with somebody. And what would be the danger of words if I created a category that didn't exist or wasn't a biblical one, at least? If you were hooking up, you could unhook. But if you're mingled with somebody, there is only one way apart. It's a spiritual sense of amputation. That some of me is with her and some of her is with me. When we are hooking up, there's not really a hooking up that's going on. There's more a, a mingling of souls. So this is a divine thing really from the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. Remember, how does the world get created? It's God's words. He just starts speaking and things start happening and it's the sky and the moon and the stars and the land and the sea and God starts speaking and he starts creating. But on Genesis 1 and 2, if you remember, it's not just God that's talking. Adam starts talking pretty quickly too. And remember, Adam's responsibility is to name the animals. I mean, isn't that so fun? I wish I could just be like penguin or whatever, you know, or pangolin is the newest thing that they're talking about, or giraffes or hippos. It's like this, this guy comes down here and God puts the parade for him. He just starts naming animals. But what's the point? of the naming animals, is not just about naming animals, it's really narrating meaning into the world that, that God has given man. That God, in other words, has spoken things into existence, and as much as I tried, I may be able to speak a ping pong ball into existence. But by naming the ping pong ball, I give that thing meaning. It's as though God in Genesis 1 and 2 creates matter, but Adam in the garden in Genesis 2 creates meaning for the world. And God has not revoked that meaning. James 3 is going to talk about this, in some of these <clears throat> metaphors you might be familiar with of the fire and the poison and the rudder and the bit, that the human tongue has great power and authority that has not been revoked, that it can't create matter out of nothing, but it does create meaning, and that it hurts and that it can control not only the person that it's speaking to, but also the pe person that's speaking, because words don't just exist to wound people. Words actually can create worlds. They can create entire worlds of meaning. So James is painting alongside with a lot of these allusions to Genesis. You're going to see things like animals and birds and reptiles because he's, he's, he's got symbolism loaded into the scripture this morning because he wants to paint a picture. Many, many different 
and analogies and metaphors that are going to exist. He's painting a picture that our words have not lost their divine power to make worlds. And they exist, for better or for worse, to echo and extend rule and reign, whether God's or someone else's, for better or for worse. But God is not revoking our privilege and our responsibility to create uh, create worlds with our words. And words are powerful not only to cause wounds, but to create entire worlds. James chapter 3, this is how it goes. Not many of you should become teachers, says James, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble from one time or another in many ways, up the steps or on the sidewalk or on a curb. We all stumble many ways, but anyone who, has, who is never at fault in what they say, who is perfect, like the, the person who is fully made right in Jesus, here's how you know that it's a finished product. They have their tongue in check and therefore have their whole body in check. So notice in James chapter 3 that on James's little treatise, his little uh, message on the tongue, he doesn't start with the way the tongue is used for teasing. He uses a lesson on the way the tongue is used for teaching. Like the first thing out of the gate, he's not talking about the way that we gossip or slander, and he gets into all that later, or lie or cheat or blaspheme or whatever, that the number one thing that James seems to be concerned about is not necessarily the way we tease others, but the way we treat, or the way that we teach others seems to be the thing that he's talking about. And notice also it's really profound that, that it's not just the tongue hurts and controls others, but actually the one who is to be pitied the most is not just the one that's listening, but the talker is actually the one with the most amount of risk at hand because the talker is not only hurting and controlling others, the talker actually ends up hurting and controlling themselves, which is super profound if you think about it. And so James kind of, I'm kind of reading between the lines, but the way I see it in terms of a journey of maturity, James portrays life as a journey of learning the power of the tongue. Wow, I just realized like a gun has power and sex has power, but something that has a lot of power is my mouth. And life is a journey of understanding and learning the power of the tongue to use it for good or for evil. So uh, I was watching this little Oprah uh, short the other day on, on Instagram, 2006, and she had this lady on there that could identify based on a baby's cry if the baby was gassy, sleepy, hungry, about to throw up or do something in their diaper. And it was profound because I swear I have four kids and I was like, I wish I would have known this. This is a baby translator right here. Like apparently you can read people's, you know, baby's cries. James is saying that the journey of, of the tongue starts when you're born. And immediately when a baby's born, they start blah, 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 because they know that there's no way to get what you want or get what you need if you're not able to enunciate and talk to the people in front of you, right? But then after the kid turns two or three, they learn how to talk and they have words. And eventually they realize the power of those words, not just for, to ask for needs, but to offer carrots and sticks in front of people to control them to get what they want to do, right? Have you noticed the two and three-year-olds and four-year-olds are doing that? And so it turns into bullying and bribery and the silent treatment. And, um, and um, you know, uh, it is... Uh, Maybe even as you grow on into a professional career, it's like, if you don't give me the raise that I want, then I'm going to kind of, you know, slow down at work and not really do the thing I'm supposed to do. Or if you don't sleep with me the way that I, you know, if you're not sexual with me, then I'm going to like break up with you. Like we start using our words as contract initiatives to try and control and steer the people around us. And it doesn't take that many years to learn that we can do that. But what James is saying is that above the baby and above the teenager, the, you know, the, 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 the growing adult, that the highest form of the power of the tongue, uh, which people ultimately will learn to use is not just telling somebody, you know, what to do or taunting somebody with carrots and sticks to get them to do what you want to do. It's actually teaching somebody what to do. The highest form of the power of the tongue is not talking or taunting, it's teaching. Because the power of talking is to define a need. The power of taunting is to define an outcome. But the the power of uh, teaching is to define truth. It is to define right and wrong on whatever terms I want it to be. So here's a little survey that makes me super sad these days, and I don't know what you think about it. 
But um, the verdict is that uh, people in our generation onward are moving off of Netflix and onto TikTok. Did you notice this? This is a true story, right? So if you look at this graph, uh, all the way to this uh, left is Generation Z, and then it goes Millennials, and then Generation X, and then Boomers, and you see the little chart of the lighter gray is the hours spent on TikTok. It turns out that Generation Z will spend 66% of their entertainment time on TikTok compared to 34% on streaming. Now, this is crazy, right? And so if you slide over to the next slide, uh, we are seeing in terms of hours in 2021 that there was 9.6 trillion minutes uh, spent on Netflix, only 9.6 trillion minutes, and then uh, 22.6 trillion minutes spent on TikTok, which, I mean, to be honest, if if it's me, I'm kind of watching Netflix while I'm streaming on TikTok anyways, and so I don't know if that's really like a ratio or proportion of, of size and scale, okay? But the trend, the trend, and it's not, you don't need a, a, an infographic to, to show you this, the trend is, is that the decentralization of story and therefore authorship and authority has gone from central to decentral increasingly over time. In other words, in the 20s, we used to read newspapers, and after the modern age, we started to watch movies. But nowadays, the storyteller is not Steven Spielberg and James Cameron anymore. It's you and me. It's whatever we want to say with whatever we want to do with the camera and the microphone that's on our phone and without any type of seminary degree or any type of instruction or any type of accountability or any type of authority. Anybody can get on their phone because they have a camera and just start telling everybody else what to do. Have you noticed this? We are at a time when there's more teachers available and less students than ever before. And might I add, I don't think it really has to do with the screen time. I think it just the very fact of the decentralization and deconstruction of truth, that's probably the source of anxiety more than anything else than the amount of screen hours that I spend. But I digress. That's my little soapbox, okay? So the point is, though, that, that James is saying to be careful because the power of the tongue, it's really the lower power of the tongue is to criticize. The higher power of the tongue is to teach. It's to do what I'm doing right now. It's to, it's to define and redefine right and wrong on, on whatever terms that you want to do and therefore create worlds out of it. So let me, take, let me just kind of change the subject without changing the subject. In your ongoing conversations on FaceTime and on Twitter and, and Instagram and texting and all those kinds of things, if the power of the tongue is not just to talk but to teach, and every time we tell a story and interpret that story, we become a teacher, how much scripture comes up in conversation? Every time the sentence or the conversation strays to, I think that parenting is all about da 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 we move from observation to interpret, and we become a teacher. And we start talking about what is true. And so the question is, it's not if, but when we start talking about what is true, will we use the scripture? When we sum things up by saying, I think the most important thing about government is da-da-da-da-da, is there scripture to be found or is it absent? Because not when, but if we start teaching, will there be scripture? I just think that the American church is this, this, and this, and it needs to da-da-da-da-da-da-da. When we say a profound and important statement about that, about spiritual realities of people as they gather, is the scripture to be found? Not just name dropping and sprinkling and frosting, you know, the kingdom and the spirit and this. I mean, actual scripture, the gospel. Like, at what point does the message of carry the cross enter the conversation? We're, either te we're teaching one direction away from the cross or towards the cross. At what point is scripture saying carry the cross uh, in our ongoing life on life conversation? At what point, as I talk about the church, does the church exist for me? Or the truer statement is, do I exist for the church and the church exists for the world? At what point does scripture come up? At what point does forgive and Forgiven come up. At what point does the, does the flesh as a category that can't do anything get in contrast with the spirit that does everything in our life? At what point does scripture come up? Because it's not a matter of if, but when we start talking, we will start teaching. So here's this little paradox that I wanted to tackle here in this next passage with all the metaphors about it's not just the talker that hurts and controls the people around them, but actually the talker ends up hurting and controlling themselves. And James gives us a whole bunch of metaphors that kind of walks us through and explains how this happens on a daily life. So uh, verse 3b, I suppose it is, says this. He says, when we put bits into our mouths, 
into the mouths of horses, rather, to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Verse 4 says, or take ships, for example, although they are so large, they're driven by winds, but they are steered by one very small rudder wherever the pilot wants it to go. So in the first verse, he says, the tongue is like a bit. In the second verse, he says, the tongue is like a rudder. Verse 5 says, likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. There's the key to the whole metaphor. Like in other words, um, it, it's, it's um, the bit is to control as the tongue is to boasting. What does the tongue wake up every day at 6.30 in the morning and start moving? It starts boasting. The, the tongue in the flesh, rather, and the tongue in Adam wants to promote and protect and preserve itself and uses its tongue to redefine evil on its own terms to do one thing, to put myself at the center of the world. This is kind of what the, what the tongue of Adam, at least, is doing. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by this small type of a spark. So he gets back into the metaphor. The tongue also is a fire with a world of evil among the parts of the body, and it corrupts. It redefines good and evil on its own terms. The whole body, you see that? You think that the body's in control of the tongue, but actually it's saying the tongue turns around, flips around, and starts controlling the body. It has a life of its own. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and then, out of the metaphorical and back into the literal, says it sets itself on fire by the fire of hell. So a couple of metaphors that you see there, if you break it down to the analogies, what propositionally he's saying is the tongue is a small instrument with a big impact, right? The horse, the ship, the fire, small thing, big impact, that's one thing. Second thing is it not only is used to control others, but it actually controls the agent that's using it. The tongue actually controls the body, which is crazy. And third, all of this controlling leads to boasting and corruption, redefining right and wrong on its own terms until it creates literal hell around us, not just after we die, but right now. So here's the interpretation that I've got on the screen because there's a bit of a tongue twister, I guess, for the sake of the, of the scripture. But this is what I got. I think that James is saying that our tongues incessantly boast to promote and preserve us. Boasting means what I do and what I have and what I want to do and what I will do. That's what boasting is. And that our tongues continually do this and it will use talking and taunting and teaching to corrupt or redefine the world the way I want it until I'm at the center. And this is what I think he's coming down to at the very end in terms of the doctrine of hell. There is a word when a human creates a world apart from Jesus with themselves at the center, and it's called hell. Right? So the rock star is just good looking enough and charismatic enough and can shred on a guitar and funny and charming enough that he can collect a bunch of people that just basically believe that he's the center of the universe. And he's in a great spot, or really an awful spot, because anybody that disagrees with him, he can just kick them out. Because <laughs> he's got all, all the friends and all the money and all the things, and then he can actually set the terms by which women talk to him. He can redefine the, the image of woman around them until he creates an entire world where women look like this and act like this and talk like this, and if you're not looking and talking and acting like this, you're out. And he creates an entire world, and what James is saying, it's not over 10 years, but maybe over 20 or 30, that he is going to wake up finding himself in a corrupted world that he corrupted himself by redefining right and wrong on his own terms and discover that he might not have a word for it, but it's like a living hell. And similarly, you and I can, can do these types of things in areas of our life. Obviously, we are saved out of the eternal wrath of God, but, but we can experience little touches of this because these are believers he's talking to on the tips of our tongue. Every time we boast in stuff other than Jesus, we build a life on health or fitness or finance or art or government or books. We corrupt ourselves, and we hurt ourselves the most because we create a world that is an echo chamber of us, and we become the center of that thing, and then we are surprised when it leads to a lot of chaos and a lot of destruction in our life. And so... As far as the doctrine of hell, it's really profound because, not to get, I believe that hell is a real place, and it is locked from the outside, and it is, it is not a metaphor, right? But what James is ultimately saying here about hell is not just that hell is, is there and then. What he is saying in the end of this passage is that hell can be here and it can be now. 
that actually we think of hell as this place that generally happy people live up their life and God catches them at the end and says, you had too much fun, go to the bad place, right? As though hell is this, is this place that God is chasing people because they had a better life than he had to offer and he has to pay them back for challenging his lesser life by giving them a punishment that's arbitrary, right? But what he's saying is the hell is not just then and there, it's here and now. And anytime we build a life with ourselves at the center, what will we expect to, to experience except for not heaven, but a version of hell. And, and so in general, what he's saying about people is that it doesn't take eternity or death. It takes 20 or 30 years to build a life centered around us when we wake up and realize that any life that we created with ourselves at the center is, is not a happy-go-lucky life that will get punished in the end. It is a suffering that we experience right now. And so here's just the challenge. I mean, truly, for your sake and for your own consideration, ask anybody that is, and I'm 40, right? So I'm not quite old enough and wise enough, but somebody that's 50, ask anybody or watch anybody that has built anything for longer than 20 or 30 years, like the man with the house on the rock, not before they die, but bef- not after they die, but before they die, anything that is built, whether it's parenting or marriage or church or ministry, anything that's not centered on Jesus, and find out if you don't b- build a literal living hell around you by putting anything other than Jesus at the center of life. So it's a very gloomy little message, obviously, right, to get all the way through this kind of destruction and warning, but there's a little bit of hope here at the end, or actually a lot of hope, I would argue, and it kind of catches us in a way that I don't think we typically read James chapter 3. If you slow down and read verse 7, it says this, all kinds of animals and birds and reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. So you're seeing all this Genesis stuff, right? You're seeing the reptiles as creation, but it's this augmented, distorted, broken version of what man creates in his own worlds, in his own image. All kinds of animals, birds, and reptiles and sea creatures, they've all been tamed by mankind, but the one thing that man can't seem to tame is his tongue. Isn't that ironic? He can, he can tame lions, but he can't tame his tongue. That's crazy. No human has ever tamed the tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. So here's the um, uh, unexpected little twist, I think, at the end of this verse, is we typically open up our Bibles to James 3, and we think that the message of James 3 is to tame your tongue. Like, watch your mouth. Don't talk bad about people. Stop gossiping. Stop slandering. Stop thinking evil thoughts and doing all these evil things. And, and James, by the end of this passage, comes to the end of, and tells us actually that's the opposite of what he's saying because what does he say at the end of verse 8? He's not telling us to tame the tongue because in verse 8 he's saying, you can't tame your tongue. This is what it comes down to. That the last thing that you should hear from reading James chapter 3 is go out there and just wash your mouth with soap and fix it. What he is not saying is tame the tongue because James's message is not watch your mouth. James's message is we need Jesus. It's watch your mouth and realize that your mouth is running away with itself and boasts and creates all sorts of evil around until it's creating all this destruction and chaos and, and let that allow you to draw your heart to be cleansed by Jesus. This is, this is the deal. Adam and Eve, the reason why the fallen Adam and, and, and fallen man before Christ talks like the snake is because they failed to rule over the snake. They were supposed to rule over the beasts of the field They failed to do that. They listened to the snake instead of God. And so what else is going to happen except for Cain when he goes out to kill Abel has adjectives and adverbs attached to his name as he goes out to kill Abel that sound like an animal. That instead of ruling over animals, he becomes like an animal. Sexually, physically, politically, militarily, he becomes like an animal and he fails to rule over the snake. And so what happens if you listen to a snake, you start talking like a snake and you start ruling on the snake's behalf, and you create worlds around you of chaos that you don't have to wait to die to experience. You can experience right now when you listen to and talk like the snake. But Jesus did not come to just tame the snake. He came to crush the snake. He came in that newness in and crush, 
crushed the snake, invited all of death to do its worst on him, to take away that penalty of sin and the power of sin for us, that those who would believe in him would not only experience forgiveness, but transformation. That the words of the snake in the mouths of believers would be transformed to words of the Spirit. That the words that used to be used for poison and venom and vice would be used for life and blessing abundant. To bless others in the name of Jesus would be the highest form of godly control of the tongue. To allow Jesus to control it. So here's, here's what it comes down to. Make no doubt about it. The, the tongue is not like an ancillary auxiliary topic in the kingdom of heaven. The, the tongue is a big deal because the tongue is creating worlds. It's creating brands. It's creating stories. It's creating images of what we think is right or wrong. And the tongue is being listened to for better or for worse by other people. And it's creating having destruction not only for ourselves but for others. The primary function, therefore, is that Jesus is not just sliding aside our words as though they're some nominal thing that don't matter anymore. No, they matter deeply in the future and present reality. A primary function of our salvation in Jesus, therefore, is the transformation of our words. He wants us to sound different. He wants us to talk different. He wants us to define things and, and, and carry categories across from culture, but instead of culture, but based on Christ, he wants us to carry categories in our words that echo his. And so God has given man a divine power he has not revoked to shape our world with his words. It's his glory to put glory in the mouths of infants, right? Psalm 8, that, that these little babies would rule the world by meekness and by the kingdom of heaven. It's the glory of God in Christ, not to silence man, not to mute us, but to amplify us in the kingdom of heaven by saving us and saving not only our heart and our souls, but our words, that our words would be sanctified and set apart and bless others in the name of Jesus, not like the serpent, but like the spirit of God does and bring his kingdom with our words. In other words, in short, I would just say it this way, his world is coming through our words. His world comes through our words. So he closes up um, and he invites us again. The message here of James 3 is not watch your mouth, it's to check your heart. Because before any word ever leaves our lips, it's already gone through the heart. His favorite preacher is Jesus. Out of the mouth, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's like a wellspring is what he's talking about. Back before it rained, remember the water would come up out of the ground. And so he uses that little Genesis and Jesus illusion here in verse 9. With the tongue, we praise the Lord God our Father, and we also curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth, praising and cursing comes forth. My brothers and sisters, it should not be. We should not be divided and fractured in our thoughts and our words, but whole. We should be a voice and not an echo. We should be singular in our verbiage and our vocabulary. We should talk with the fear of the Lord as the only thing that matters, and our words should mimic that because out of the heart the mouth speaks, and our heart has been transformed by God. We have the heart of God in us. Because of Christ. So verse 11 says, uh, Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives and a grapevine bear figs? Neither can salt and spring produce fresh water. What James is saying is that the words that we're doing are not to be steered and controlled. They're meant to lead us back to our heart that we would submit to Christ, repent, and see it cleansed. The invitation here is not to watch your mouth. It's to see your heart washed. It's to see that anything that's coming out of my mouth, it's not just an accident because I stubbed my toe. No, that was down there somewhere. And it came up out of me because I, my desires that should have been put towards God and been for God have been put on somebody else and I'm demanding desires that belong to God out of somebody and I'm surprised why I'm so mad about it. And he says, that's why you quarrel so much is not because, you know, that your desires are too high. It's because you put them too low. And you should ask God for the thing that he ultimately wants to give you. And so these, these words are really invitations. They're not to be fixed. They're meant to be followed back into our heart of what what we actually are saying with, with the things that we're saying, even in heated moments. So I'm gonna read to you... Um, 
little journal uh, that our counselor gave me one time. It's called an upset journal, but they were like, if you were talking to millennials, you'd call it a, a trigger journal. Uh, but basically, it's a great journal with four questions. You might ask yourself anytime that you say something that feels like it's out of character, like God's saying, well, it kind of isn't, you know, that there's still work that I want to do on your heart, not just your lips. So the four questions were, what triggered the upset? What did you think? What did you do? And what did you want? And I'm just going to read a couple of little live examples that might connect with you and your story. But I think the most important question out of all these questions is, what do you want? James says the reason why we get in quarrels and boasting all this stuff is because we want something that God doesn't want to give us, or we set our desires on something lower than the good thing that God wants to give us. And so really the root of this whole thing is not our lips, it's our heart, it's our desires, it's what we want. And these things are misdirected. So it says, for example, you might go home and, you know, your little upset journal, like I've got an upset journal, it's great, helps me out. Um, it says, what triggered the upset? For example, you might write down something like, well, the alarm didn't go off and I was late. And then it says, well, what did you think? And really what is making you mad is not the alarm. What really is making you mad is this thing. Why do I have to be the one that wakes up first around here? So what did you do? Well, you were totally meek and mild. No, you cussed out the kids and yelled. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, what did you do? I yelled at everyone and slammed, and, and slammed around. I, I've definitely seen this before. It just takes a small little thing to make a big impact. And what did you want? Well, this is what I want. I wanted others to take responsibility too and not just me. I didn't want to feel alone. That's really what the words are inviting us to do. Number two, what triggered the upset? My husband canceled our lunch date. What did you think? He never puts me first. He has time for work. He has time for this. He has time for that, but he doesn't have time for me. Well, what did you do? Well, I was sarcastic and mean, and I hung up on him. Bam. Okay. What did you want? I just wanted to be first in his day. That's the desire. That's the real desire. That's what the words are inviting us to do, to listen to God speak to us. On last one, what triggered the upset? Well, a friend of mine called me out for gossiping. Well, what did you think? Who is she to tell me what God wants? What did I do? I told her to mind her own business. And, and what did you really want? I wanted to be perfect. I didn't want to be wrong. These words are an invitation. They're not just little accidents that we just mute ourselves. They're actually opportunities to be invited into our heart and really what the heart of God might be saying to us. And there's, there's more to be said down. And honestly, this is one big, long argument of what James is getting to the heart, that, that the words are attached to our actions and our actions are attached to our heart and the heart that's fragmented, that fears God, that fears the world more than it fears God can't have but a fractured word. But before we get into to all that into James chapter four, I think we just rest assured and be settled on this, that the purpose of our tongues is in Christ is to bless others in the name of Jesus. Like if we're gonna plan backwards to that's the perfect picture of, of what the tongue is made for, then we can conclude this fact, planning backwards, that there is no better use of my tongue today than to bless others in the name of Jesus. As a matter of fact, you might even come to this conclusion that if I have a tongue in my mouth and it uses words to flap around and right and wrong and redefine and define things, then I think what the scripture is saying, actually, it's not used for anything else except for blessing others in, in, in the name of Jesus. Isn't life great when it's being made simple? There isn't actually 16 options for your tongue today. There's actually one option, says James. It's to bless people in the name of Jesus. Doesn't that make life a lot simpler and easier to know the one job description your tongue has? It's to bless others in the name of Jesus, to wish the best possible well-being on somebody else in the name of Jesus is the best use of our tongue today. And, and to do anything else than that seems to, seems to under, undermine its design. So um, I'm going to invite the band to come forward, and I just want to read three verses to you about three areas in our life and how the tongue might be occupied by the Spirit to bless others in the name of Jesus as opposed to cursing. James says that our job as believers um, is really the same since the beginning of Genesis. is to be occupied by the kingdom of God and extend his rule and reign by echoing his words to speak with the words of Jesus, to bless others is the best use of our tongues at all times. And so I just wanna invite the Spirit to speak to us on these three areas, to bless enemies in the name of Jesus, to bless neighbors in the name of Jesus, and to bless church and family in the name of Jesus. Enemies, neighbors, and family. 
So I want to read this verse to you, Holy Spirit, come. I, I pray that you would speak to believers in this room and not only tell us that we should be blessing others in the name of Jesus, but how we might do that even, even today or this week. So Matthew 5 says it this way in verse 43. It says, you have heard that it was said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you to love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. I'm a simple person. I like simple things. It seems so simple. What Jesus is saying is that that the best use of your tongue when you come into a conflict, when we come into conflicts with other people going opposite directions and run into tangents with them, with our enemies, the best thing that we could do for our enemies is to pray for them. And so I think this verse gives us permission, even double dog dares you and me right now, to think of the person in your mind that raises our blood pressure the most and bless them right now in Jesus' name. Double dog dare you to see as the environment in your mind and your heart shift that it's actually not the circumstance that we want change, it's our heart that we need change, and watch as our heart changes as we speak blessing and life over the person that's hurt us the most. That we pray for our enemies. We bless them. We're not saying that wrong is right and right is wrong, but we are asking for your best in them. We're asking for Jesus to bless them in, 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 in um, his name. And so I think this is what, what uh, for example, Jesus and James would be talking to us. Number two, blessing our neighbors. neighbors and we ask the Spirit to, to um, speak to us on this. Romans 12 says this, to bless those who persecute you and bless and do not curse. Romans 12 is telling us that we never have authority to, we never really have license to, we never really have any profit in, in cursing people. And so we have an opportunity for everyone that lives in our schools, in our workplaces, all around um, our, our community to, to simply bless and not to curse. I wonder if um, the Spirit might show you even now about a picture of what that would look like, to bless someone in Jesus' name. Who is somebody that is a neighbor to you that might be open to the Spirit? that you might bless, and what does that look like? Lastly, as far as church goes, Ephesians 4 says this, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that may, they may benefit those um, who will listen. I wonder if even right now a face would come to mind and a word would come to your heart that you would bless somebody, even in this church, somebody that you think that is encouraged already or you know, has somebody that's got their back, and maybe you're just adding to that, or maybe you're mistaken and they're more abandoned and uh, distraught than their smile gives you um, uh, impression for. But maybe the Spirit would give you a face and a word to bless somebody in Jesus' name, even in this, in this service. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.